Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast. I am Pastor Kelsey, and as always, I'm so thankful that you are here. We are on number three of our Sermon on the Mount series, but before we dive in to today's scripture, I just want to remind you to find our community online. So you can find me on Instagram at Pastor Kelsey B or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Kelsey B. Every Monday, I do a little bit of a check-in and then post throughout the week. You can also sign up for a weekly devotional email to come to your inbox every Monday morning at dancingpastor.org. I pour my heart and soul into those little emails and I really, really, really value the sanctity of an email inbox. So I promise your email does not get shared with anybody else. I will only send you one email a week. The only time I might add a little extra is if I'm putting out a, a devotional for Lent or for Advent. But other than that, it's just every Monday morning, a little short devotional that takes probably a minute to read. So I hope that you sign up for that and find me on social media. I would love to connect with you. I always want to hear your thoughts about what we're putting out on the podcast, what you want to hear more of, all those things. So please, please, please reach out. Okay, let's dive in. Today we are reading again from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and this time we are reading verses 13 through 16. So I invite you to find yourself in a position of listening whatever that looks like for you. Allow your body to relax a little bit. May your heart be open, maybe widen across your chest so that you can receive these words. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said in those ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with them, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here ends our reading. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, may we hear these words of yours with new ears, with open hearts, with open minds. May it fill us, may it fill our wells with good news, with hope, with mercy. May we hear it not as law, but as grace. And God, I pray for each of the people listening today that they may be touched and filled by your love, by your mercy, and by your goodness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whew, okay, my friends, that's a lot. <laughs> what we just read is a lot. So the first thing I want to do is just cover a few things. Some pastors, when they do this, like at the beginning of a sermon, they'll call this a, a teaching moment. They'll just say, I'm just going to take a moment before I dig into my sermon. We're going to address a few things. So that's what we're doing here. The first thing I want to do is look at verse 20. So verse 20 says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in this verse, when Jesus references the scribes and Pharisees, we have given the scribes and Pharisees kind of a bad reputation, just in the way scripture has been interpreted, the way we've read it. Sometimes even the way it was written, the scribes and the Pharisees can really be looked down upon and seen as the enemy. But what Jesus is doing here in this particular sentence, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what he's doing here is setting the bar incredibly, incredibly high. The scribes and the Pharisees were like those church people who followed all the rules, who were the ones that you looked up to. They always volunteered. They were always the ones showing up to help. They are like the embodiment of Christ in the world. They're the ones we look up to and want to be like. And so what Jesus is doing here is setting the bar there, setting the bar incredibly high. So I, I wanted to bring that forth first. And then the other thing is when this text addresses what is translated as hell, the Greek word used here for hell is Gehenna, which is based on the Hebrew, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, so I apologize, but Gehenna, which is a valley that is south of Jerusalem, where ancient kings sacrificed innocent children. So in the New Testament era, when scripture is being written, this reference to Gehenna is not to the idea that we have in our minds of hell, where there's fire and burning and horrible things, where people are tortured throughout eternity. Gehenna is kind of a, a purgatory-like place where people go and they suffer until they have atoned for their sins. And in a lot of Jewish sources, the maximum amount of time a sinner can spend in this place in Gehenna is one year. 
So it's a little different than what we think of when we think of hell. There's a lot of various sources. If you are curious about this, I am not an expert, so I'm going to send you out (laughs) to do your own research. You can just Google the word Gehenna and you will find a lot of interesting information. There's Wikipedia, which has links to other articles. I encourage you, if you do use Wikipedia, go to those sources that Wikipedia is pulling from and read those. You can look at Mercer Dictionary, the Bible, lots of different things. Those will have a lot more information on hell. But I just wanted to lift up that what Jesus is referring to is not the idea that we have gotten in our mind about where you go for eternity and you suffer. It's a It's a very different thing. Those ideas of hell developed much, much, much later, particularly after Dante's Inferno, after writing that and people starting to read that and that getting into popularity, into our culture. That's really where a lot of our ideas around hell gained traction. First things first, I I wanted to talk about that. And then the language used in verses eight or nine about uh, cutting off (laughs) limbs or cutting our eye out is hyperbole. It is not meant to be literal. I'm sure a lot of you know that already, but I just wanted to say it. Let's dig into this. I want to talk about the various commands that Jesus makes in this text. So, for example, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, you are liable to judgment, even if you are angry or hurl an insult at someone. So that's number one. Number two, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that even if you look at a person with lust, you have committed adultery. And number three, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery and you commit adultery if you marry a divorced woman. So what Jesus is doing here in these commandments, some translations give this section a header about how Jesus is kind of negating previous commandments. But that's not really what is happening here. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to dig deeper to take us to the fullest extent of what this commandment means. So it's not just about do not murder. Jesus is saying, no, let's take that to the furthest extension of what this means, which is do not be angry. He's also creating a buffer zone for us around Torah. So Torah or law is, for example, do not kill. And what Jesus is doing is he's creating a buffer zone around it by saying, do not be angry because if we're not angry, (laughs) it's less likely that we're going to kill. And Amy Jill Levine, who is a brilliant Jewish scholar, calls this building a fence around Torah. This is something a lot of rabbis did and Jesus included. They are looking at these commandments and helping us interpret them and find ways where we can build this buffer zone around them. It's creating safety. So let's talk about buffer zones and what these things are. So as Amy DeLevine says, she calls this building a fence around Torah. And fences and boundaries are something that I personally (laughs) have struggled with a lot. I'm getting better, but boundaries are hard. And for me, I thought of it because I'm a people pleaser as keeping people out. Like when I set a boundary, it didn't feel good. I had a negative connotation with that word. But something I realized this year was that boundaries can create a lot of clarity, which makes me think of something Brene Brown always says, which is clear is kind, unclear is unkind. So clarity and boundaries can be a really good thing and actually can lead to fruition, to bearing good fruit, if you will. 
So what happened for me around this this year is that when I was starting to work from home due to COVID, I was working all sorts of hours and it was a little jumbled and, you know, I wasn't in the office. So I was just at home and my church folks kept asking me, what are your hours? What are your office hours? And at first I was like, well, why, like, why do I need to set office hours? But then what I realized is after I set some clear hours saying, you know, I would be available by email between 8.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Uh, and then if you want to schedule something outside of that, I'd love to meet with you. So I, I set that actually as my email signature. So it's on every single email I send out. And what happened after that was really amazing. I got a lot more phone calls between 8.30 and 1 p.m. Before, you know, sometimes church people would reach out, but not very often. But as soon as I set that boundary saying, this is when I'm available, people were calling me. They wanted to chat with me. They wanted to check in. They wanted to talk about something that was weighing on them. They had a prayer concern. It was amazing. It bore such good fruit that I realized how beautiful it was to set a boundary because then people felt safe. They knew they could get a hold of me during those hours. They knew they weren't interrupting me doing something else. They knew that it was okay to call. That to me connects to a study I learned about actually when I was in seminary, which is about playgrounds. There was a study done on different playgrounds, playgrounds that have fences and playgrounds that don't. And even playgrounds that have super, super wide, large fences around them. So imagine like a large block that's a whole playground and the, the fence is the outline of the block. So it's a huge area. Any playground with a fence had much, much fewer instances of violence, disagreements, misbehavior than playgrounds without fences. And what I realized is fences, at least with the right intentions, aren't necessarily about keeping people out, but are something that helps people feel safe. When we have boundaries, we know what we can do, what we cannot do. There's a sense of safety that comes with them. And so when I create a boundary in my life, when I build a fence with good intentions, what I have done is provided a way for people to not get it wrong. So as soon as I set clear office hours and I started getting more calls, people reached out because they knew they couldn't get it wrong, that they were okay in calling me in those moments. I created a sense of safety and that safety created space for freedom. I was just talking with my life coach, Linda, about this just today, and we were talking about the benefit of boundaries and, and safety, the safety that they create. And she said something beautiful. She said, you know, when you think about it, you can't really have fun or even truly be yourself when you don't feel safe. It's really, really hard to be vulnerable when you don't feel safe. And so what Jesus is doing here is not about restricting us, but creating a good and a healthy boundary. He's creating a buffer zone, a way for people to not get it wrong. If we work on not getting angry, Jesus knows, by the way, that we will get angry. Even he got angry. But if we work on that, if we work on not getting angry, it's highly unlikely that we will get to the point of killing someone. If we work on not lusting after things that we don't have, so taking that beyond lusting after a human, but lusting after things we don't have, it's highly unlikely that we will commit adultery or whatever other crime, stealing, etc. So Jesus is creating this buffer zone for us. The tricky one here is divorce. And again, I am not an expert in this area. I want to 
kind of offer you a culmination of all the things that I have learned. And I will say too that Amy Jill Levine's work on this is by far, at least for me, been the most beneficial in digging into what Jesus is saying here. Because, and as a lot of you know, the reason I started this podcast was to help us untangle harmful theology. And so some of the harmful theology that has come from this particular text is keeping people in marriages that are harmful, that are 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 broken. And, you know, I, I had a woman come up to me once the first time that I led communion. She came up to me after church and she was just in tears. And she said, it means so, so much to me to have a woman preside over communion because I was kicked out of my church for being a divorced woman. They refused to offer me communion. And it just means so much to me to see you up there presiding. It was one of those moments where I so, so deeply appreciated the values and the theology of my church, that it was not one of our teachings that you are abandoned by God because you are divorced. That is so far from the truth. And this saying from Jesus has often been interpreted as Jesus saying divorce is sinful. What I want to offer you all is a different way to look at this. One of the ways that people have looked at this text from Jesus trying to help maybe redeem it or untangle some of that harmful theology is looking at this as Jesus being a social justice warrior. And I am all about Jesus as social justice warrior, as I'm sure a lot of you know by now. But the way they look at this text is Jesus saying this to protect women from being discarded or from, you know, divorce being used as a means of, of discarding a woman. Like she's being treated like property, as if Jesus is saying, you can't divorce a woman the way that you would sell a sheep. You just can't keep doing it and doing it. And some of the thoughts are that divorce left women with absolutely nothing, that they had no resources, that they were kind of left out to dry. And so Jesus's intention in saying this was around social justice issues and protecting women. Amy Jill Levine, however, says that that understanding is pretty far from the reality for first century Jewish folks who would be hearing Jesus say these commandments, that divorce wasn't really a rampant issue and that Jewish culture actually did have protections in place so that a woman who was divorced wasn't actually left with absolutely nothing, that she did have some financial resources and things like that. And so her understanding of this text, which is in a similar vein to a lot of other scholars, is centered around the word that has been translated into unchastity in the English language. So the way this is read is Jesus saying, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, etc. So this word unchastity, which we have come to understand in terms of sexual immorality, is the Greek. And again, I, I am not a Greek scholar, so I, I apologize. Unchastity is the Greek logo per which is somewhat vague in its meaning. And it encompasses a lot of various issues. And unchastity, or the word that's translated into unchastity does not only include infidelity or adultery, 
but can also include things like abuse, desertion, loss of affection, addiction uh, to a certain point, like when someone has an addiction and, and refuses to get help. All these different things can be put under the umbrella of logopernai, or what is translated as unchastity. So when Jesus addresses the issue of divorce, he's talking about all of these things. And he quotes Genesis here. He says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And the way that Amy Levine and other scholars look at this is perhaps that maybe it's that not all marriages are joined together by God, right? Not all of them are a match made in heaven, so to speak. If your marriage is causing you harm or someone else harm, perhaps that's not something that God has brought together. The way that Amy Jill Levine writes it in her book, Sermon on the Mount, which I highly, highly recommend, she says it this way. A marriage that looks like a battlefield is not a marriage sanctioned by God. My friends, I do not believe that God ordains suffering. God is not causing you to suffer. God is not telling you that this is your cross to bear. If a marriage is far more broken than it is whole, my belief is that God does not want you to suffer. God does not want you to sever your spirit for the sake of saving your marriage. My friends, God calls us to wholeness. God calls us to union, not to to brokenness or devastation. And sometimes the pathway to wholeness might be through divorce. And that's hard and that's sad and, and painful, but know that God is with you through that. So if you have been touched by divorce, whether you are going through one or you know someone who's gone through one or your parents went through one, know that you are still beloved by God. I often say this, but it is always true that there is nothing you can do or say or be that can keep God from loving you. Period. You are good and whole and wonderful. And I just, I want to always reiterate that. There's a lot more that can be dug into, my friends. This is really, this is the surface. There's a lot, a lot in these scriptures. And so I really encourage you, if you are looking for a resource and want to dig into this further, again, Amy Jill Levine's book, Sermon on the Mount, is fantastic. It's easy to read. It is so, so good. It offers more insight that I can offer you in a short little podcast, or I don't know, maybe this one's long. (laughs) I hope that in this, there was some good news and some gospel for you that somewhere in this episode, you have found God speaking to your heart in one way or another. Maybe you need needed to hear this divorce text in a new way. Maybe you needed to hear that it is good and sacred and holy to set healthy boundaries. Whatever it is, I hope you feel and know that God is with you always. And know that I am so, so grateful for you and for the ways that you are present and digging into this with me. Thank you so much. I will see you next week for more. God bless you, my friend. 
Thank you for being here. Amen. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.